what we don't need is kids that have memorized certain math facts. What we need are kids that know how to build models and deal with complex systems and make predictions and pick apart multidiscipline systems that involve everything from like oil production and transportation costs, you know, all the way down to religious issues, right? Like th this is the kind of thinking that, that we need to be fostering if we're going to have um, kids that are prepared for the world that they're, they're growing up in. You're listening to The Breakdown with me, Chris Clearfield. The Breakdown is a podcast where we connect with business owners and experts to hear their perspectives on this crazy, complex world. I'm your host and fellow learner, and I'm glad you're here. I want you to take a second to think about the place where you work. If your team or your organization was suddenly faced with a thorny, complex problem, one with no obvious or easy solution, how would your senior leadership respond? How would you respond? One of the things that I learned from writing Meltdown and from my consulting work is that the organizations that are most likely to successfully solve complex, multifaceted problems are the ones that embrace learning as a value. They're ones that value experimentation and making mistakes because they realize that those mistakes are actually opportunities for further insight. They're ones that are somewhat paradoxically comfortable with the uncomfortable sensation of not knowing the answers. So today I'm talking with David Gagnon, a researcher at the Wisconsin Center for Educational Research and the Director of Learning Research Lab at Field Day, all of which are at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. David researches learning and designs educational video game experiences for students. Now, I know that seems far away from the senior echelons of Fortune 500 companies where much of my work takes place, but our work is actually much more alike than different. We each facilitate learning that is intended to lead to action and change the way that people engage with the world so that those we work with can be more successful in whatever context matter to them. Our conversation today touches on a lot of things, chief among them learning and what it actually is, how to create experiences that encourage learning, how to consider the whole person when embarking upon a learning or an organizational change process, and the surprising benefits of adding an artistic side to an otherwise technical team. I learned a lot talking with David, and I hope that you will too. To get started, why don't you just uh, introduce yourself and say your name and, and kind of where you're at and, and what you do, and we'll take it from there. Sure. Um, so yeah, I'm David Gagdon, and I uh, direct a group called Field Day at the Wisconsin Center for Education Research at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And in a nutshell, um, what I do is I build and research video games for learning. Um, so I'm within a, you know, an education context, a research context, but we're kind of like a studio in that we're building you know, multimedia content with art and story and animation, um, which is, which is a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and, and in your context, I mean, how do you, what, what does learning mean? Like, how do you think about learning? Oh, that's a good question. It's, you, you almost always have to start there because I think that we have so many preconceived ideas of what learning and education are. Um, 
I think maybe it's even better to say what I don't think it is. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't think that learning is an exchange of information where like I can put some facts in like a baggie and I can hand them to you and then you have them. Um, I don't think learning looks like that. And I think um, over the last hundred years, you know, as a field, we've really moved through these whole paradigms. Like what is knowing and learning? Um, you know, starting with really thinking about human beings being kind of like animals that are trained, right? This is like the Pavlov and, you know, this kind of early behavioralism, they call it. And then, you know, later when the computer started to come around, we started to think minds are a lot like computers and you needed to form schema or programs basically that they would run and they would process information. And that was kind of the next metaphor. So I'm really grounded very firmly in this camp of folks that you would call social constructivists, which means we really think about learning being very much tied up in the idea that you're a whole complex person, a subject, and you have an infinite amount of uh, past experiences and opinions and prior knowledge and passions you bring to a table. You're embodied and gendered and cultured. You live in a real place at a real time. Um, so what that means is that anything that comes out of that is really, you know, going to look a, a little bit different maybe than what you might think of as a classroom. So I think of myself at the highest level as an experience designer and really think that, that education is a matter of designing experiences for people. Boy, there's so much there. Um, it's interesting that you led off with, you know, two things I found really striking about that. One, this idea that that learning is not just getting a bag of facts. Um, I think that that's really important. And, you know, there's this kind of stereotype of the sort of uneducated populace, you know, so-and-so number of people don't know how many senators there are, such and such percentage of people don't know sort of, you know, who America declared independence from. And like, there's a level at which those things are concerning and, and, and you feel like there should be some shared basis in reality, which is a much bigger conversation. But there's also a level, I, I've, I've heard the argument on the other side that, you know, people are much more sophisticated in their tools to solve problems than they were, uh, you know, 50, 100 years ago. And one of the examples I've heard cited is just the complexity of the average TV show. Um, you know, in the 50s, the average TV show had a pretty linear plot with a like a one story arc. And then you look at something like, you know, like Lost or um, uh, what's another good example? I mean, even Seinfeld has these kind of interwoven plots. And so I guess one question is just other than these metaphors for learning, what are some of the ways that you think that our ability to solve problems has evolved? And how do you think about that in your work? Yeah, that's a great question because obviously there is something to knowing certain facts, right? Like you can't reason without them. You can't. So, so I'm, I'm not saying that those things aren't true. It's just, they're not interesting, <laughs> you know, like they're just, they're just not compelling. Um, there, there's a lot of directions to go from here. There's this really profound idea, um, 
that came around just a, not even that long ago, I think it was in the, in the mid nineties and it was the notion of uh, multiliteracies. And th there was a, a group of folks that, that gathered um, that really wanted to define what literacy was in kind of a modern setting. So, you know, the traditional definition of literacy is, you know, that you know how to read and write in a language. The, the vision that they came away from you know, is, is getting closer to what you're asking for. And what, what literacy was defined by this group, they called the New London Group because they met in New London, um, was that literacy is really a matter of being able to read and write and participate within the culture that you, you exist within. Yeah. And that is a moving target, right? Right. So at this point, you know, like today, you know, when you talk about like, participating with society and I'm, I'm kind of hijacking your term like problem solving and I'm getting into that bigger umbrella but to like really participate in society I think you know at this point like being able to access an API might be really important or being able to do some basic statistics might become really important or being very savvy with media is becoming very clear very important um, so I think when we start asking that question you know puts us into a different you know, whole headspace to be in, because obviously what one of the roles of education is to, is to be moving us towards people that can participate in society. Now that's related to, and I think separate from something that has become uh, very interesting across all the different disciplines that we think of, history, science, math. And that is that there's an increased amount of focus these days in the practices of those domains. So you don't teach science facts, you teach the practices of science, right? So almost every project I'm on, well, every project I'm on right now has this idea of well, what, what are the methodologies, the vocabulary, the discourses, the tools, the goals, the struggles that are represented within these disciplines, the, the practitioners of these disciplines and how do we get young folks or learners, even adult learners, using those same tools, discourses, values, right? Um, so for science, you know, it's about uh, being able to design experiments and construct models. It's about being able to argue from evidence. In journalism, you know, we have like defined journalistic practices around how you corroborate evidence and how you perform research. And um, so again, I'm, I'm kind of skirting around the idea of like, problem solving as a particular uh, thing and instead like getting right into like, well, what does it mean to be in the world and doing things of value in it? <laughs> yeah. So then can you tell me how many seconds it's going to take to fill the pool if I've got a certain rate of flow in the water? Right. right. Well, th so this brings up, I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of directions we can go here. One thing that I think is just a very practical example of that we are seeing happen right now. And for, for folks who come to this later, you know, right now we are in, I would say the kind of, you know, the, the very, like if, if it were a marathon, we're in like mile one, one and a half of the vaccine rollout here in the U S and one of the things that I think is really interesting when you talk about literacy is this kind of gap between the methodology that, you know, organ that, that governments, that local governments are using to, to set up their vaccine rollout and where the people that are the target of that rollout are. So specifically thinking about, 
you know, using computer-based scheduling and expecting someone who's, you know, 70, 75, 80 years old, who is the target population to be able to access it in that way. And I think when you talk about literacy in the, in the context that you have, you know, that person is not literate in their ability to, to participate in this transaction in the way it's set up. And it seems like there hasn't been a lot of necessarily sensitivity to that, not universally, but on the part of kind of lots of people whose, whose aim is to provide the public health service. But there's a pretty high bar in terms of technological literacy to be able to participate. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good use of, of the word literacy. It, it really inspires me then to talk about the, you know, kind of coming back to the whole human. Um, it really inspires me to, to also bring up this idea of uh, when you've got some agenda, whether it's an educational agenda or some sort of social agenda, we have to realize that, again, we're dealing with entire human beings and the right answer or the smoothest path, um, you know, the, it, that's not where it stops. And, and actually, it's not even an interesting place to begin. It, there, there's really something I think we've learned in the last couple decades around, you know, really human-centered design is where we get started. You can see when I use phrases like designed experience, I'm drawing on that, that kind of rich tradition um, as well. But I think what's been really fresh in our work and been really fun has been the ability to really acknowledge that learners are bringing with them, you know, not only like what they know and what they don't know, but what they feel about things and what their identities are like and what their families are like. And when we talk about, you know, topics like the vaccine or politics, um, we obviously know that we're not, the, the, the things that are happening are not intellectual debates. Like that's not where, the, where change is happening or anything interesting is happening. Um, they're emotional and cultural and, um, you know, they're really tied up with people's identities and, and within their communities. So even when we're talking about, case in point, a third grade history practices game, it's really on us as experience designers to acknowledge that a whole bunch of third graders, as young as they are, um, the fact that it has anything to do with history has already turned them off, or the fact that it's a video game has already turned them off or the fact that the character that they might meet in a game um, sounds like a goody two-shoes who's you know, always obeying all of the teachers. Like as experienced designers, we've got to like get into the head and the feelings of the audiences we serve and kind of meet them right where they're at. And hopefully design an experience that, that brings them into some new places, um, you know, because we are trying to create change, but know that that's not going to happen through like having the facts right. right. <laughs> it's just a whole different target. In that game, for example, we're running a, the game's called Joe Wilder in the Capital Case. And it was a game that we produced with PBS Wisconsin. And it, you know, our partnership with PBS is amazing. But one of the things that you commonly see in, in PBS style media is a lot of really kind of good kids, like all the cartoon characters. There's not a lot of disobedience. There's not a lot of snark. Well, in fact, you have, I mean, it, it's even sort of reinforced because I think Dora the Explorer is a PBS show, right? Yeah. So you, you even have like the deviant behavior in like Swiper being called out. Swiper, no swiping. For, you know, listeners who don't have kids, um, <laughs> you're forgiven for not not <laughs> not having that, that land with you. But yeah, so it's a very conformist kind of um, approach. I think so. It's a little bit of a best case scenario. 
And one of those studies that we're running right now, like we're collecting data on this right now, is if we write our protagonist character as someone who kind of doesn't all the way buy into the adult world, like isn't totally convinced that they've got something figured out, um, is a little snarky, really could care less about history, never does have a come to Jesus moment, like in the final scene of the game, like never is like, oh, we just needed to do more history, yay. Right. Like if we, keep, if we keep this kid, you know, really just caring about her pets and her grandpa and avoiding homework, um, you know, how does that actually change the experience of a kid? And the hypothesis in this, and I guess we'll find out here in the next couple months when we analyze all the data, is that if we actually paint a version of a kid that sounds more like a real kid, that's really acknowledging the world that, that they live in, that we're gonna end up building more trust and going places we couldn't have gone than if we would have just presented this character again that is, you know, this perfect, obedient, you know, good model student. So th this has been one of these kind of fun areas of our work that that even though we're in education, we get to do some new kinds of things. And we talked about this in the in the pre-show was it's been very fun for us to leverage the large audiences that we get using video games to do new kinds of learning science research. And this study is a good example of that where, you know, we're, we're looking at, I don't know, somewhere in the avenue of 50,000 different play sessions. And we can start harvesting data at that level by watching the way people play the game anonymously, of course. Um, but, and we can do that to do really rapid product design as well as theory development. And this is pretty much what's keeping me busy all the time is even though I sound kind of like a, you know, use words like embodiment, you know, there's a, there's definitely a Madison hippie thing that's inspired there, but it's fun when you take those things and then test them empirically using big data. Um, so kind of swinging full circle around, I think this is one of the things that makes my job really fun right now. Yeah, can you um just can you put some just like concrete kind of I mean and maybe it's maybe it's this history game we've been talking about. Can you just like just take a minute to describe like what it is? What's the experience like? Like kind of give give us a little bit of a scaffolding so we can we can kind of think about like so I can imagine what it would be like to pick up my my phone or my iPad and play it. Sure. Okay. So this one's a, I'll, I'll stick with Joe Wilder. This is a game for, for little kids, third through fifth grade. You can barely read, <laughs> you know, you're just learning, right? Um, practically it's a point and click adventure game. So you've got a character on screen um, that's you and you can move her around and you can uh, investigate the rooms that you're in and talk to people. Um, as a history inquiry game, um, you very quickly kind of come on to the scene where your grandpa is a historian and there is a, a bad guy character um, who is in a fight with your grandpa. Uh, he's kind of the new hot shot, but he's not always right. So in this game, you kind of go down these detective-like threads and one of them leads you to encountering the women's suffrage movement and when women in Wisconsin um, were able to kind of turn the tide politically and, and finally be uh, given the right to vote. And then you go down the, the birth of uh, the notion of Earth Day um, and, and meeting the characters involved with, with that and ecological kind of invest, you know, investments that have been made by the state. So practically you're, you're clicking on clues, you're reading documents, you're talking with people, you're meeting experts, 
and then you're you're kind of combining all this information together and then using it to argue for a particular interpretation of an artifact or um, you know make a case you're arguing from evidence um, in total the game plays out for about an hour it's played a lot by fourth graders that happens to be in the state of Wisconsin at least like when kids do local history but it's used nationally um, at any day we have you know it's thousands of players a day at this point um, and kids love it. <laughs> we we tra track the Twitter feed on it and we see things like schools that create Joe Wilder Day where they all dress up like the characters. Wow. Or one I mean, that's engagement. Made, yeah, like totally, right? Some teachers talked about uh, WWJD, what, like what would Joe Wilder do? Um, and they use that as a model to kind of understand how you kind of question and critique, you know, facts and history. Yeah. Um, on the better sides, we see people use the game as, as a launch pad into doing their own local investigations, you know, even with little kids. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of uses for the game. We're, we're just taking the energy of that and we just started up a brand new one that is all around shipwrecks. So cool. this is like underwater archaeology and you're learning again the practices of archaeology by finding sources, locating where these boats might be, diving, you know, you're kind of learning all these practices again, learning how to know what you know. Man, there's so much here I want to ask about. Um, one of the things I'm just feeling right now is just like, just like excitement to share all these parallels that I'm seeing between things that do not seem obviously related at all, which is your work and my work. So one of the ways I think about my work and one of the ways I think about the, the leaders that I work with is that they are leaders who are trying to solve the kind of most complex, consequential problems that their companies face. And I think that, you know, my background is in thinking about complexity and so one of the things that is true about a complex system in, you know, in, in, from the 30,000 foot view is that the things the, 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 the facts don't matter that much. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, it's a dynamical emergent system. And so the things that you, you, you can never just list, you can never list enough facts about the system to actually understand it, which is kind of, I think, Resonant in this complexity, right? Well, right, exactly. Facts are being invented every yeah. Exactly, but the other thing I think is true is that that same that same perspective applies equally to the leaders who are working in this system. I think in the same way that it applies to the learners that are you know entering and growing into the world that we have now, the leaders that I work with tend to be very technically adept. They have, you know, sometimes decades of experience solving the particular kinds of problem that their industry has, whether that's aerospace engineers or software engineers or legal professionals um, or, you know, oil and gas engineers. So they've got that deep rooted experience, but what, you know, their job to date in many ways has been giving an answer to a problem. And, and now their job is dealing with problems that don't yet have an answer. And so it's interesting when, when you talk about embodiment, 
and you, you talk about the Madison hippie. I mean, I've got a little bit of the Seattle hippie thing as well. But one of the things that I think is so interesting is how much the practice of solving these big problems kind of depends on the ability to be uncomfortable with the unknown or, or rather be comfortable with the unknown, the ability to sort of take your discomfort and, and not be able to provide an answer, but be able to provide a, to, to use a set of tools to get to an answer. And it seems like that's exactly what your, or at least what, what, um, what Joe Wilder is trying to teach. It's like, it's not about the answer. It's about the tools to get to the answer. Does that, does that seem right? Yeah, I think I think you're exactly right with that. And you said so many words, I think they're really important. So one of them is discomfort. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, in business, because when there's money on the line, and certainly school, we want to like be right all the time. Yeah. And that's so ridiculous. of an idea <laughs> Because the again, to come back to like the idea of like interesting, like nothing interesting happens when you move from doing things right to getting it right again. Like that's not that's not interesting. Um, it is so hard even for children to become comfortable with, with failure that it's birthed like an entire field with, within the field of games and learning, which is to study and describe failure um, as a formative experience. It's hard for teachers to watch kids have any sort of failure, even though you know we, we make it really clear that like, losing is part of learning like it's you you have to we celebrate it and we make it fun and we make it big and explosive sometimes um so there's all the there's this whole like attitude of being able to literally play that i think puts you into the position of a, of the best possible like kind of posture for learning um and organizationally then we i have to do that too because i have a team and i've got to make a bunch of money to pay all these people's salaries and such so it's even like organizationally then how do we leverage that and how do we create systems for ourselves that allow play and failure to, to run rampant? Um, and, you know, we're not coming up with anything too rocket science, but, you know, we do a lot of agile style work and, you know, we prototype a lot. We, um, you know, like tomorrow night this time, we'll, we'll be online with uh, these cohorts of teachers that we've assembled so that we could make sure that we're designing with our audience the whole time and showing them prototypes that don't make any sense. They're totally broken and they're super embarrassing. Um, and we're constantly designing experiments. I was really affected by early business books around, you know, things like the Lean Startup and you yeah. know, figuring out ways to ask questions. That the Lean Startup, that's Eric, Eric Reese, right? Reese sounds right. I'm not sure about the first name, but um, yeah. So I think it's really interesting, both like at the organizational level, like then how do you operationalize that? Like as a team, that's like one fun way to think about play and failure. But then, there, you know, we obviously are trying to build that into like our definition of learning. Um, what does it right. mean to learn well? It's like a lot of failure, failure as you're updating your model, um, your mental model in this case. So, yeah, there's a there's a lot of ways to take that, I think. Um, I'm glad that you see some of those parallels. I, I love that we're, well, I should say I'm hopeful that because of fields like complexity, there is a new humility that, that I think we can have as a species to 
not assume that if we could just get all the right facts and shove them into the right equation that we could predict you know past present and future perfectly like people don't believe that anymore but they did just a generation or two ago where i think now we're when you when i think of complex systems you know we do a lot of stuff around like agent based modeling for example in our games or um or working within the complex system of education which is um you know just insanely complicated at many many levels many actors and players and um and i'm finding like within that world what what i think there's a humility that comes in because you don't think you can get it right it, it's like you're not even trying to to nail it um in certain ways instead it's like doing a set of experiments that allow you to learn a little bit more yes and kind of validate what you're learning or to be able to simulate things at low cost before you actually have to pay for them <laughs> Um, you know, these are like the, those humble little practices that I think are making their way into our society that are, that are good. Um, I want to, can I push back on something a little bit that you said? Please. I think that there is, I think that there are pockets of people that are getting comfortable with this, this view that everything is essentially complex. Um, but I think that there, I think that the, the way that most people today have been trained is still very much in this deterministic, uh, this deterministic way of thinking, you know, if something goes wrong, someone is to blame. That's the kind of outcome of the deterministic way of thinking. And, and it's not that it's not that in a complex system, I guess a different way to put it is one of the corollaries of believing that you are in a complex system is that when something goes wrong, you use that as an opportunity to learn. And you sort of say, well, anybody in that seat could have made that mistake. Let's try and learn from it. And one of the things I found really interesting just about um, the the recent inauguration of Joe Biden is his kind of statement that we will always be straight with you. Like we will always, um, we will tell you good or bad kind of what's going on. And I think for me, that gives me a little bit of optimism. I mean, it's something that, you know, it's hard to necessarily hold someone accountable to, but but just this idea that the sharing and the learning and the here's what we're going to do next, that that is the thing to focus on rather than the intermediate outcome in, in the moment. Um, I, th I, th I think that's really, that's really interesting, particularly given how, I don't know, how frothy our time is right now. Um, yeah, that's good. I mean, I I deeply respond to that idea of kind of radical transparency uh, to a fault sometime. And I think I have gone overboard with it. Um, and I don't what's know if this it, what's is it, like, Can you share? I don't know if this is too much transparency, but can you share an example of, of going overboard with radical transparency? Um, let me think if I can think of a really strong, tight example. Are you drumming on your desk? No, there is a child who just bounced above me. I see. <laughs> you're you're currently <laughs> embedded in a complex learning system. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh man, I feel like I really should have some good examples of just being too transparent here. Organizationally, I can. Uh, this isn't exactly the same, but I think it. Oh, I can. I can give a good, really good example. Of this is just recent. Okay, so I've always. Uh, you know, I grew up playing with computers in like the 80s and 90s. So open source and freeware and shareware were just part of the culture of it. 
um, you know, before there was this whole excitement about entrepreneurship and like every kid with any idea was talking about monetizing it. Um, I think that, you know, there was a, I was, I certainly was part of a hacker culture that just really enjoyed the community of just screwing with stuff and just having fun with that. Um, and I've really been influenced by that in that now, you know, here I am as an adult and everything we do is hundred percent open source, for example. Um, we try to create systems, like I mentioned, where we have uh, multiple stakeholders involved in every stage of every, the, every project from brainstorming all the way to like really final, you know, QA testing of things. Um, I end up being funded by a lot of foundations that, um, you know, are really invested in kind of big visions like the National Science Foundation um, or big research labs that are doing fundamental research into the nature of reality, like the Ice Cube Laboratory in Antarctica. So I, I feel like I, I've really gone all in on this very open, very for the public, you know, attitude to life. And that has had consequences. It's had a couple. One of them is that separate from business, when we work with, let's say, a, you know, astrophysicist, um, I have certainly learned that if we are 100% transparent, about every single process we use and what it looked like, what our individual meetings are and invite them to be part of everything, um, we lose a little bit of magic. Yeah. And this magic is when they look at us and say, man, I, I have no idea how they could have done that. And that having that little bit of a lure actually really helps everybody collaborate a lot better sometimes. Yeah. Um, there's a, the word magic, there's a, there's a, theme called a, or I'm sorry, a vocabulary word called a transactive memory. And it's when people in a team know what the other people in the team excel at. Um, and it's kind of like that, but it really is like the, sometimes we can overshare our process. Um, there's also times I think where uh, open source has, it's not that open source has backfired, but it's that sometimes people need to pay for things to value them. Yes. Right, because free can start to be considered like junk, or free can start to be considered. Um, well, there's there, there there really is nothing that's totally free. Like so, someone's paying somewhere, right? Right. So I think that we've you know gone into realizing that there's certain times where we need to charge for things, even though we don't need to charge for them. But it's like again, it's magic. Um, it's it's a psychological experience for our partners. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. I. I, I... I mean, that is, I think that is very, that is very perceptive and, and, and very deeply, um, very deeply human, um, that we value things that we pay for. I mean, in fact, my, my, um, uh, colleague, she's basically my COO. She and I were just talking about this. We're hiring somebody to, you know, write, write some copy for us. We generate a lot of content and, um, you know, one person costs twice as much two people cost twice as much as the next three people down and you know the natural instinct is to be like well they must be better right i mean if they're if they're willing to charge more they must they must be adding more value there's just like a thing that you have to control for in the brain on 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 both sides of that that yeah um, and here's the here's the rub when it comes to education is that i feel that it's borderline unethical to figure out ways to monetize kids and teachers. <laughs> like these are the wrong people to be, you know, trying to squeeze a dollar from. Um, 
So we've got this really complex system again here where what we really want to be able to do is provide free and equitable access for all kids to stuff that costs millions and millions of dollars to make while still finding the millions and millions of dollars to actually make it. And there, there's been moments, I think, where you know, th this really worked. Um, I'm a, again, a huge fan of PBS, right? So you know, we think back onto the impact that Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers had on entire generations. And there's certain times where to do that, to have that kind of impact, you have to do it at scale and it costs a lot, a lot of money. Um, so I'm constantly trying to navigate ways where we can do things that have that kind of impact um, while at the same time kind of standing up for parts of that wildly transparent, open, free, um, you know, fail forward kind of attitude all the time while having to interface with, um, well, business folks that don't really get that, um, even public media that, that that seems a little, just a little too wild. Um, right. So yeah, there's, a, I think if we had the same conversation, you know, even in five years, I think I, I would, I'm really learning still about um, not only the idea of transparency, but then how, it's not just about transparency and openness and freeness. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm clustering all these ideas together, but there's, there's a much more nuance, I think, in this, if we're gonna have real impact as well. Yeah, and I'm sorry, I'm, I realize I'm bringing so many concepts together, kind of all the same soup. That's what we do here. That's what we do here, Dave. <laughs> That's good. You know, I'm, I'm curious about, um, again, there's so many directions we could go with this. I'm curious about kind of two two threads that are just sort of standing out in to me. You know, one is just this idea that, and, and this goes back to, to, you know, deterministic versus emergent, which is kind of a, a theme through our conversation. What is this idea that that I first came to when I read a book called Deschooling Society, which is by a guy called Ivan Illich? Do you know Do you know the book? No, I, I don't know it. Oh man, if the only thing you get from you you got to read the book. It's like it's like eighty pages. He was a, a radical Marxist priest who basically makes the argument that the public education system globally is designed to actually cement inequality. Um, you know, he's very, he's very radical and there are lots of counter arguments to him, but one of the things that just struck me, and I think this comes from, from growing up with my father too, who was a sociologist and sort of read a lot of critical theory. And I just got exposed to these ideas as a kid, um, you know, without often understanding the the depth of them. And I, I still wouldn't claim to understand the depth of them, but, you know, with our, with the kind of traditional public education model, which is broken this year, by the way, because of the pandemic. But, you know, with our traditional public education model, we have a block of time where kids go to all do the same activity at the same time, essentially. it's It looks a lot like a factory system, right? You show up, you do your shift at school, you you go home. Yeah, there's and, whistles that blow every 45 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's rows, yeah. Um, and, and so I guess the, the question I have, the question I'm getting at is like, if we're going to train people to solve problems that are rooted in complexity, which is essentially what both you and I do in very different contexts, then what's the way that the kind of work you do is going to start to substitute instead of complement for the traditional approaches to education? Hmm. 
Well, yeah, there's there's big and small answers to this. I mean, here me being really transparent. I mean, the I've come at this from a lot of different ways in the last two decades, and right now the best real answer I have for that is that through creating relationships that are pretty substantive with many teachers um, in these small groups, we create these little pockets of practice around our state. And I really believe that it's going to be through um, those repeated but deep interactions with teachers that are spending time with us, they're making with us, um, they're influencing us while we're influencing them. Um, I really think that this bottom-up kind of approach is how real transformation is going to happen. It's going to be slow and tedious, and it's going to take us another several decades before we're able to get our thing in more and more schools, which is, we really believe video games are, are this kind of incredible learning environment. Yeah. Um, and that's despite the research that, that is just very clear empirically that yes, this should happen in policy. So I really am believing in this bottom-up approach. Um, and it's really through, yeah, just, just constant growth. Now, practically though, you know, we get into some really interesting questions. Like we need to create an entirely new distribution mechanism for media to get into schools um, that is really in service of the right now felt need that they have. And that's proven to be very challenging. Um, I think we really need to see a, a massive, massive buy-in from um, the federal government on providing free public good learning materials and really get off this fetish we have about privatizing everything all the time. Um, so I think that there's some coordination that could happen in the, in the kind of political world. Um, I'm really, really excited to cross that line a little bit and meet some more private philanthropists though, that really can, can buy into this idea of, yeah, let's be Mr. Rogers for an entire generation of problem solvers. You know, like how do we have an entire let's say middle school science curriculum that's based in experimentation and failure instead of memorization, you know, and quizzes and such. So that's just gonna take a huge influx of funds. So I think I'm really believing this bottom up thing. There, there's a way that I think other folks have come at it and I've, I've been on this side of it too, you know, maybe a decade ago where you really feel like let's blow up the schools. <laughs> and I don't mean that like in the, in the big way, you know, I, I'm not talking about violence. I'm talking about like defunding them into oblivion. And I've even seen investments by, you know, some pretty great foundations otherwise to, to just give up on schools and say, we need to build the informal learning network through the YMCA's and the clubs. And, you know, these organizations, we're just gonna put all of our effort into that. Um, as you would imagine, some of those orgs funded early games work. So I don't believe that. I believe we've got this perfect environment. We've got these buildings, we've got these caring adults, we've got these kids that are coming together. Um, we've, and now more and more, we have uh, you know, high quality connections to the internet. In many parts of the country, we have one-to-one -one Chromebook or iPad devices. I mean, we're really, we've set the stage, I think, for a pretty fantastic learning environment if we've really started to leverage those digital tools a little bit. Um, so that kids could spend a majority of their time in collaborative 
experimental play <laughs> um, with a guide, with a teacher guide there that is there to to bring them to the next stage, to you know intervene and to you know kind of set the tracks for this whole thing. Yeah. Um, there, there's. I, there, I'm just gonna build on that. There's like an infrastructure analogy that's coming to mind. It's almost like, like if we had invented this, like you know, the jumbo jet. If we had 747s, but no airports to land them at now, like, like we've got, or or instead we used airports as like landfills or something like that. Like we've got, we've got all this infrastructure. We've got this this technical infrastructure. We've got this physical infrastructure. We've even got this, you know, this organizational and social infrastructure. We've got the people. We're kind of just asking them to do the wrong jobs. Like we're, we're asking them to be content creators and, you know, interveners and social emotional development. And, and maybe if we could kind of offload some of that in a way that was, that was scalable and, and research-based, then, we'd almost have the best of both worlds. Yeah, it really excites me to imagine a classroom where kids would begin a topic on a Monday morning by playing a game that let them kind of explore it. And the teacher would be spending the majority of their time trying to take the tools and practices that they, an interest that got you know developed through that gameplay and turn that to actual local issues. If, if we had kids, that, and this is not, these aren't crazy ideas. I mean, specifically the community around what they call place and community-based education has known this for a while. It's like, how do we quickly get kids dealing with the real stuff that's happening in their communities? Like quickly, um, because it'll be in those complex systems of should we, you know, uh, put a new bike path past the school or, you know, should a stop sign go here or how are we managing, you know, local water issues. It's like in those local things that exist in every single neighborhood that we see the actual wonder of math and science and literature and art and history come to life, right? Um, and that's the thing that bothers me about schools is that even though they're local, they kind of ignore their locality a lot of the time. And this is a this is something that I think could really be improved and is exciting to work on. And it's funny that I'd be talking about all this local kind of stuff and the again individuality of a kid, and right with it be pairing you know digital video games as a as a potential launch pad. I, I know sometimes that seems dissonant. I yeah, but it, I mean it doesn't it doesn't seem that way. I mean I've drunk the Kool Aid obviously, but it doesn't seem that way to me because the the the, the counter to being local is uniformity. Right, the the counter, like the polarity of of kind of local is is uniformity, and I think what we see is how frustrating uniformity is to to everyone, and how much it is really, you know, who wanted uniformity? Henry Ford wanted uniformity. This is funny. This is the second time in a handful of podcasts that this idea has come up. Henry Ford wanted uniformity. We, we there are very few places where we want uniformity nowadays. Um, uh, there are very few places where we are trying to produce people who excel at, at, at reproducing a uniform asset. There are some, but even they are true craftspeople in, in many ways. Uniformity is for robots, right? I mean, that's what robots do really well. Uh, yeah, literally. That's what our machines are good at doing is right. repeated process. And there's so many systems at play that mean that people that love spreadsheets and they love to line things up and they want everything to be the same. Um, that subtle influence has authored so much of the systems that we live in. Yes. I, 
I heard a really great podcast from the Harvard Business Review just the other day around kind of bureaucracy. And it was just this, again, it's a subtle force that can just take over. Um, and, it, and I get it, like I, I see how that happens. And as, as you know, systems grow as more people need to boot up a school real fast, you know, um, you know th that does make sense, but that's not, we, we know it very clearly. Like what we don't need is kids that have memorized certain math facts what we need are kids that know how to build models and deal with complex systems and make predictions and pick apart multidiscipline systems that involve everything from like oil production and transportation costs, you know, all the way down to religious issues, right? Like th this is the kind of thinking that, that we need to be fostering if we're going to have um, kids that are prepared for the world that they're, they're growing up in, right? Right. Well, and, and I'll say, literate. you know, bureaucracy, literate, right? Back to that idea of being literate. Um, and bureaucracy is really interesting because in general, uh, one of the, my mental models of bureaucracy is bureaucracy is designed to, it's not designed to optimize anything. It's not even designed to de-risk things. It's designed to reduce uncertainty. And, and that is, and that, that goes back to this capacity to be uncomfortable, to, to be comfortable with the uncomfortable. And I think that is just one of the biggest capacities that w we in general struggle with on a, on a system-wide level. Um, I'm in such a weird position to respond to that because, you know, I work within a, a university system that's, you know, tens of thousands of staff. I mean, it is huge, right? The University of Wisconsin system is massive. University of Wisconsin itself is like a good portion of the city is, you know, hundreds of buildings. Um, so this is about the biggest bureaucracy you can imagine. And it's, it's academic too. So not only is it a bureaucracy, but it's, it's, there's a lot of uh, momentum to the academic order, you know, like right. the way that that thing works. So it's been really interesting to be, you know, as you can see this, like, you know, borderline anarchist, running this studio that looks much, much more like a startup in the way that we actually, you know, work and operate, but we're in the middle of this massive bureaucracy. So I feel like these, you know, that tension is constantly put on display. Yeah. And I, I have to say though, I wouldn't have it any other way because there's something about being in the middle of a, of a really large influential institution like that that does open certain doors and does afford certain moves um, that normally wouldn't. I mean, we get to work with the entire state because the capital is here and the Department of Public Instruction like literally pays us to be a culture changer you know, within the state. Um, those opportunities wouldn't be, exist if we were working out of some little office in San Francisco, right? Right, and then and then you get and then I think you get back to the polarities. Like you want the bureaucracy to do what the bureaucracy does best, and you want to 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 use that to create the space for people to uh, innovate within it, right? I mean, that's you. It's not an either or. It's a it's a both and. And I think that's true for the for the for the schools as well. I wonder if I can pick up just one last thread and then we'll have to end, which is change. Uh, change is something I think a lot about. I think it's at the center of my work in many ways when I work with leaders and organizations. The nature of the problems I work with is always that someone is kind of stuck in some way. Um, the, the, and you talked about change, you talked about addressing the whole person 
And I actually think that that's one thing that, that modern business leaders, um, it's one of the tools in their toolbox that can be underutilized that, you know, it's one thing to show up and try and influence a group with, you know, data and metrics, but it's another thing to show up and realize that they actually may not want to do this kind of change. They may have resistance in other areas. It, you know, they might not like you. They may not trust you. They might not like this change you're imposing on them and they may not understand it. But if you just focus on the kind of the facts, the figures, it's very easy to get um, to be stuck. And so I'm just curious when you kind of talked about change before, you just mentioned the word and I, I gave it a little star in my notes, but like, how do you think about change? Hmm. That's a, I mean, yeah, that's a question and a half, isn't it? Um, I mean, one thing to, to draw right away is that um, as a studio, that means we have people that are very data centered and organized that are doing production management and research, but we're also full of artists. <laughs> and one of our little taglines tag is that we're artists making games. And, and that, that says something. Um, I think one of the one of the breakthroughs that that I've had in my career is that our creative director um, Sarah Gagnon, we're married as well. Um, she's she's a legitimate artist who manages other artists and writers and storytellers, and because she's in this place we're working with UX designers that are thinking about you know formal you know human systems and such but also you know just the art world which is all about you know actually eliciting some sort of reaction um i think we're always trying to think about things in terms of of that emotional component as well as that logical component and I love that that we've been lucky enough again with games that you know we we run A/B tests and we use numbers and statistics and analytics and if you look at all of our research, I mean this is like this is like where we're making progress, but it's mixed in with a legitimately creative, legitimately artistic group as well, and I could imagine that some of your listeners don't have that force in their in their organization, they don't have that like completely. Uh, a little wild, a little playful, a little silly, a little acknowledging, like, does it feel good? <laughs> or how does this make someone feel? And I feel like that's just like such a big part of our DNA. Um, so again, I feel like I'm not coming directly at that word change, but when I'm thinking about like how we are able to have breakthrough and do things maybe that haven't been done in a certain way before, um, how we're able to do things that really connect with large audiences, I, I can't not think of the the role that artists and storytellers play, <laughs> like for us to always be thinking in new ways, always to be kind of pushing in new ways um, and knowing that the facts aren't going to fix it. Yeah, I, I think that's really, that's really beautiful and um, really lands with me when I think about the organizations and, and, the, and the teams that I work with and you know, how as an outsider, one of my jobs is to create that space for a little bit more playfulness, for a little bit more, because um, I would say 90% of the teams I work with, if you think about the kind of the, the data play polarity, I'm not exactly sure what the right, what the right polarity is, but um, 
maybe it's seriousness, but it's it's not serious because you can be you can be serious in a playful way. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. You know, most yeah, of the a, team, a, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say a really practical example of this. So, um, David Krakauer, uh, he's now the president of Santa Fe Institute. So this is like you know the primo you know place that studies complexity. He was at the Wisconsin Institute for Discovery when Field Day was first booted up. And um, so here's a, a group that has mathematicians, biotech, um, kind of a lot of computational optimization stuff. So these are like classic, you know, $100 million grant scientists in this big, gorgeous building. Um, and then David Krakauer is, a, you know, he's, he's a complexity guy. So what does he do? Well, he makes sure that there are art installations everywhere through the building, like step one, like weird, crazy stuff everywhere, just to get people talking and thinking. He brings Linda Berry in, who's like an award-winning cartoonist and starts running workshops where it's not that she's gonna visualize the science, but she's gonna teach the scientists how to think through image making, right? So it's almost like in the, in the overlap of like completely disparate disciplines in this case, like new things could be thought. Yeah. Right. And that's interesting. Like, and I don't think we, I mean, there are people that they want to, they want to polish, they want to optimize, they want to iterate. Um, they want to not screw it up. They want to, you know, get one more percent out of that design or out of that profit margin. Um, I'm lucky enough to live in the world where I want to completely rethink things and, and find things and, um, think about entirely new business models for how we can reform education and entirely new models for what learning even looks like or how we measure it. Or, um, and that kind of work, I think, that, that requires having a very different composition to a team that has a lot of creatives on it. I, I think there's no way other to, than to do it. Well, I, and I think, you know, the, 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 the steps that Krakauer took, I mean, if there is a there is a physiological basis for that, right? I mean, you're shifting the percentage of time people spend in their right brains versus their left brains. And, you know, there's there, there's a lot to say about that, but when you are only in an analytic mode, you start forgetting that that other people are people too, um, you know? And, and and I think that there is something, you know, the, the art, the, the creativity, just, trying to shift people more and more often. I mean, that's where you get, that's where you get the spark of the idea. And then you need the grit and the analytics to, to bring it to completion. Like you can't, you, you need both. It's all about the balance. I feel like that could be a, that could be the, the, it's a theme of a lot of what I think about. And I think it could be the theme of, of a lot of what we've talked about today. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I certainly would not argue for the complete lack of any structure. <laughs> I, you know, that that's not it either, right? Yeah. Um, and and at some point, you can't fail the whole time. At some point, right. you nail it. Right. Um, but it's you know, it's these ways of of creating environments where failure can happen. Again, this is kids as well as organizations, and you've come up with a structure that absorbs that failure and turns it into an asset. Um, it's, and I think, again, within a complex system, an ecological system, you know, you win in the long run, right? You, you it, that, that's what the interesting part is, is like whether your species survives. Um, and that comes through this radical innovation. And I think right now we're playing around with things like openness and 
new kinds of transparency, new ways of you know, co-design with your audience. I think these are some of the sites for, for that new innovative shifts. Um, so I don't know, it's fun that I get to wake up every day and try to apply those things to <laughs> the work that I'm doing. Man, uh, Dave, thank you. This has been, I, as I said, right before we, we, we started recording, I'm not sure exactly what we're going to talk about, but we'll just take it where, where it goes. And, uh, I mean, this has been so, so fascinating and I, I really appreciate your sharing your, your insights and your thoughts and your just kind of, um, yeah, your sort of sensitivity to like the nuances of, of the complex adaptive system that you're operating in. And I think that's really helped me broaden my perspective a little bit today. And I hope it, it cool. does the thank same for, for the folks listening. So thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. It was fun. Thanks for listening. To stay in the loop about new episodes and to be eligible for my periodic book bundle giveaways, sign up for the breakdown newsletter at chrisclearfield.com giveaway. So what's this giveaway? Every few months, I bundle together three or four influential books, often written or recommended by guests from the show, and I give them away to a few lucky listeners. I'll include a signed copy of Meltdown, and because I'm friends with many of my fellow authors, I try to get their books signed as well, so you definitely don't want to miss out on that. Go to chrisclearfield.com giveaway to get on the list. Finally, join your fellow listeners, subscribe to the show, and share it with your friends. And if you love the show, give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. Even one extra review helps us get an edge on the algorithm so more people can find us. And before we roll the credits, remember, if you're a business owner ready to transform your business and your life, find out more about my approach to coaching and sign up for a free intro session at chrisclearfield.com slash make the leap. That's all one word, make the leap. The Breakdown with Chris Clearfield is a team effort. The inimitable Rain Avant is our assistant producer and makes everything run smoothly. Gabe Turner and Claire Skinner help make the amazing content here and on my newsletter, available at chrisclearfield.com slash the breakdown. Laura Stack is our editor, and our theme was composed by the creative team at Spiky Blimp. Thanks so much for listening, and be well until our next breakdown.